welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 20. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by the king of free speech, Mr. Toby Young. This week, Andrew Bridgen drops the H-bomb, the Tories get even more woke, and Clarkson begins his grand apology tour, plus our top stories of the week, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, big news in your life this week. You did an important event at the Oxford Union, speaking about wokeness, and I hear your speech went down really well and beat all comers. No. Um, well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that recently. It was a. Uh, it was a couple of months ago, and um, and the motion was something like, um, "This house believes woke culture has gone too far," and uh, I was speaking for the motion, um, and also on my side was Konstantin Kissin, and um, I noticed um, earlier. Well, I noticed last week that Konstantin had posted. Um, his entire speech on Twitter, and it played really nicely. So whenever you kind of, whenever the tweet came up, it automatically started playing, and it was about sixteen minutes long. And I was like, "Wow, how did he manage that?" Because um, you know, um, I thought you were limited to two minutes and twenty seconds, and so I, I DM'd him to ask him how he managed it, and he said he became a subscriber to Twitter Blue. Once you've done that, you can upload longer videos. So of course, I I thought it. Constantine's video immediately started racking up loads of hits. I mean, quite substantial numbers of hits. And I thought, I can't have this, you know, um, my, I, 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 I can't have him running away with this in this way. I need to put my video up there as soon as possible so I can start racking up the hits too. And uh, his speech was good, you know, but then I thought mine was okay too. So anyway, um, I, I, so I became a subscriber in my, in my enthusiasm, in my, frenzy to compete with Constantine I immediately without thinking about it became a subscriber to Twitter blue which I'm now regretting I've got buyer's remorse because I already had a blue tick and I'm now thinking that (laughs) I could have kept that indefinitely for nothing now I'm paying eight pounds a month for the privilege I already had and if I cancel that subscription my concern is I'll now lose the blue tick hang on Um, isn't it 11 pounds now no it's eight pounds eight pounds a month really mine says 11 why is yours why is yours Uh, maybe i got a reduction because i already had the blue tick i don't know because you're a legacy blue tick and musk has promised to get rid of legacy blue ticks like you pretty soon but now you're a paid blue tick as well it is very complicated i happen to know that constantine paid for his tick because there was a so-called algorithm of shame that you could access and you could find (laughs) out who had paid for their blue tick so i just searched on this algorithm of shame not that i particularly think it is shameful and i found that he was one of the people i knew that had paid for it but you've now joined that as well. It's very, like you say, it's complicated because you are a legacy. Anyway, so I, I, I was able, having become a Blue Tick yes. member, to post the longer video, which I duly did. Um, and uh, it, 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 I've got nowhere near the number of views as Constantine. So um, uh, you know, on YouTube, YouTube has posted the two speeches. Um, and you know his is definitely ahead of mine. When I last checked, I had 266,000 views. He had... 372,000. I'm never going to close that gap. Uh, But on Twitter, the difference is just insane. So last time I checked, I had uh, for my clip, you know, it wasn't, it was the whole speech on Twitter, 28,000.2 views. So 28,200 views. Uh, Constantine, by contrast, has got 20 million. His clip has got 20 million views. And uh, if you look at the Twitter counter, it's kind of quite confusing because it, admittedly he's done very well on the Twitter counter. It says he's got 8.2 million on one of the viewer counters. The other viewer counter says a paltry 1.5 million, which, of course, I'd be absolutely delighted with. But somehow he's got 20 million. I mean, I'm sure it's legit. I'm sure he's not guilty of, you know, 
Trump maths. Um, but uh, anyway, it's just extraordinary that uh, you have any theory, Nick, as to why Constantine's clip has got 20 million views on Twitter and mine has fewer than 30,000. I have a few theories. Constantine is just, he's just a killer. I mean, I, you know, I say this as a compliment. I mean, you've got this work ethic. Constantine's got this extreme work ethic, but it's so of you. So it's kind of like that kind of balances out. So I'm not sure that there is something though, Toby. I mean, I had a podcast famously and people, I, I, I never talk about this, but people bring it up to me all the time. I had a podcast that famously influenced uh, Constantine's podcast. It was me and Francis. And then that went awry. And then Constantine ended up somehow with our producer, who was who my contact and Francis as the co-host, doing a similar show, but a bit more serious. Ours was more comedic and doing really well with it. And I ended up kind of like, if you, you've seen this film, The Social Network, basically I'm those rowing twins and they're a two-headed Zuckerberg. <laughs> no, no. I've got a better analogy. You're the Glenn Matlock of um, trigonometry. You know, you were, the, you were originally in the Sex Pistols, but kicked out for the more charismatic and edgy Sid Vicious. So Constantine is Sid Vicious and you're Glenn Matlock. Well, I thought you were going to go with the Beatles, Pete guy or whatever it is, Pete Best or whatever it is. I thought you were going to go with that angle. But Was it Pete? And then it was Stu, it wasn't there. It's, it's all very confusing. Um, I thought you were going to go with that one. But yeah, I see what you mean. I, I thought of myself as the, yeah, Pete Best. I thought of myself as the, the, the rowing twins. And I'm saying... It's my idea. And then they're going, well, if you were going to invent Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Anyway, it's all water under the bridge because I went on their podcast and did the podcast. It's all good. But there is, but he is a killer, man. He just does well, Constantine. You, you, you don't want to go up against him. And, but it, we, ha- we are learning what motivates you, though, now, Toby. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of over-competitiveness and petty vengeance, isn't it? Because you want to just destroy his numbers. I mean, you did very well as well. Let's be very honest. I watched your speech. They're both good speeches. Yours was funny. You hit all the good main points. You got a massive round of applause for your heckle put down for the young lady claiming that Ireland was still undergoing colonialism. I mean, it's a bit of a softball, but but it was you know it's a bit of a weak uh, attempt, wasn't it? But you did well. But here's here's a theory. He invoked emotion, didn't he? He invoked your newborn baby, and he also played the Russia card. Like, I'm from Russia. We grew up with outside toilet. I mean, my dad grew up with an outside toilet. It's not that weird, but I suppose. In Russia, more recently, people were growing up with outside toilets. You need an outside toilet anecdote, yeah. Toby. I'm, I'm not sure I can quite compete with you and Constant on that score, but in my parents' second home in the south of France, there was for a time an outside toilet. Um, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I concede. I think that Constantin's speech was better than mine. But, you know, what is the ratio... 28,000 views to 20 million. I don't think it was that much better. It was right. better, no question. And he, 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 and he kind of hit some emotional chords I didn't. And I remember when I was sitting in the Oxford Union, he went after me and I thought at the time, crikey, that, that speech is a lot better than mine. Uh, but I didn't <laughs> think it was so much better much as better. to justify you know, this extraordinary ratio. Do you know what it is, Toby? He's funded by Russia. It's obvious. <laughs> I mean, he's Russian. He's getting these weird numbers. Where is he getting it from? He's funded by Russia. We don't want to make any libelous claims. We just simply want to claim Constant is funded by Russia. That's that's all we want to say. <laughs> that, that, that of course was Carol Codwallader's explanation for why her side lost in the EU referendum. It's a great Nothing answer. to do with they'd made a better case. Uh, it resonated more with the British public. They wanted to take back control. The EU had been basically taking the piss for twenty years. No, nothing to do with that. It was all they were funded by the Russians. But I'm not sure I can go that Cadwallader-esque explanation here. <laughs> I think he just made a better speech. <laughs> Jordan, but you did get that great moment where you took down old Benjamin Butterballs. Did you remember that? You, I'm not saying remember. It was you. He, what is it? You, you brought up an amendment to his speech. Well, he was talking about um, 
how there was no such thing as cancel culture. It was just consequence culture. It's a, a standard line that um, the woke left come up with when you confront them with the horror that is cancel culture. And I pointed out that one of the people the Free Speech Union is looking after is um, an author, a young adult fiction writer um, who was cancelled after tweeting hashtag I stand with JK Rowling. Um, And by cancelled, I mean HarperCollins cancelled the contract she had to write two more books for them. And she had to retrain as an HGV driver. Um, and is and I just asked Benjamin if that's what he had in mind by consequence culture. Is that a perfectly fair and just consequence for tweeting, I stand with JK Rowling, that your career is destroyed and you have to retrain as a lorry driver? Yeah, and that was a good moment. I, here's a colleague of mine, of course, but I do have to say you both owned and destroyed him there. So that's some consolation. Obviously, you got spanked by Constantin, but that's some consolation perhaps for you. I did notice that when Constantine was giving his speech, people kept standing up trying to make points. And he said, and no, he thank wa- you. He just waved them away. Yeah, maybe I yeah. should have done that. Maybe yeah, I was interrupting the English my tradition. flow. So you did the English tradition, like, yes, be very, give way, be very courteous. He did this sort of killer Russian, like online, thinking about the clip. He had the clip in mind the whole time. No, thank you. And he, what he should have just said is, I want my viral clip, because that's what he was doing. And it was shrewd. Well, he got his viral clip. And he did I indeed. can't understand why his has gone viral and why it hasn't, but such is life. I, you know, yeah. one, one, one trick I must, I, I, I'm going to steal from him next time I post something of mine online. He said, this is the speech I gave at the Oxford Union. And sort of something like, as promised, I didn't hold back. And that's like an inducement. That's clickbaity, isn't it? That's like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what he said if it was completely no holds barred attack on the woke. So that must have piqued people's curiosity. Yes, I should he, have said something like that. Well, he's good at those copywriting techniques in tweets as well. And you have to say, all oh, kudos to Constantine. Very impressive, he, and his speech was very good. Well done, Constantine. We know it was funded by Russia, but nonetheless, it was a great <laughs> speech. And so we want to make clear that, that absolutely. And um, even the just, just oh, a, the coda, Nick. <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> One of the lines he used in the speech was that his newborn was cuter than 80% of puppies. And this is another way in which his speech was better than He threw in some quite good gags like that. And I didn't do that. And um, and then he posted this follow-up tweet. It was a clip of him with his very cute baby, it must be said, on his shoulders. And it was like, didn't I tell you my baby's cuter than 80% of puppies? And even that clip got something like 20 times more views <laughs> than, yeah, yeah, than my speech. Anyway. Last time I checked, it had like 91,000. It's just a baby. Oh, no, it's way bigger than that now. It's oh, like really? 200, 200K plus. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, he was smart there. Well, next time, Toby, you've learned your lesson. You have to get me to punch it up a bit. You did have some jokes. They just weren't as good as his. So you I get know. me now, to I, punch it up yeah. for a small fee. Okay. Well, there you go. Get your viral well, we've got, we've got, We've got the three speech... Uh, sorry, the third year anniversary of the Free Speech Union party coming up. And I'm going to make a speech there. And I might well ask you to give me a couple okay. of gags. It'll be awkward if you don't invite me like you didn't to the last Free Speech Union event. Um, so <laughs> let's move <laughs> Let's move on. It was at Christmas. Let's move on uh, to more people that hate me uh, because we're going to do Hate is Going to Hate, which is my new section, which is we get so much hate. But we just we laugh in the face of it, really. So this week was quite a surprising one. Reg, Reginald D. Hunter, good comedian. I've met him. Seems like a nice guy. But he's fallen onto the popular trope of having a lazy pop at GB News. So Justine Morrison filmed was uh, filmed racially abusing a doorman outside a cocktail bar in Halifax. And if you are going to do it, that's the place, isn't it? A cocktail bar in Halifax. It just sounds so grim. What kind of cocktails are this? They probably think like uh, Jack Daniels and Coke is a cocktail. 
Um, anyway, he replied to it, someone's going to have their own show on GB News soon, meaning, of course, you're a racist, so you must be on GB News. So that's kind of a hate for both of us, Toby, because we're both on GB News. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've when I've seen Reginald Hunter perform, I've always thought he was pretty funny and not particularly woke. And he's also, he's he's played um, at Comedy Unleashed, hasn't he? He's mm. been on the bill. Exactly. So that's quite surprising. I remember once... Uh, Quick, quick uh, anecdote here. I was once on Have I Got News For You? And the other panellist was Reginald. And um, and I remember being, I was terrified before. And I thought, you know, Paul Merton, um, Ian Hislop, you know, they're bound to come for me. And they duly did. And so I was trying to kind of anticipate what their attack lines would be and how best to respond. And also kind of try, I had in fact talked to a friend of mine who I co-authored a play with a couple of plays with actually, and he'd give me a few gags. He was the Nick Dixon of the day. Um, and he, and I was kind of rehearsing these gags in my head and you're just terrified that it was all going to go wrong and it would destroy my career. And it would be just like, you know, people would be laughing at these clips for years to come. Um, and, uh, and I remember swinging by Reginald Tunter's dressing room and he was smoking a, a, a big Camberwell carrot. And I was like, crikey, you must be pretty relaxed if you can afford to, he's like, I, helps me relax i'm better when i'm a little bit relaxed i was like god you're a break he was your my approach was much more like your approach before appearing on an episode of headliners you know manic over preparation <laughs> for fear that i'll be humiliated because i won't i'll be i'll be stumped by something i don't want to be that anyway so uh yeah but i was very impressed by how relaxed and uh at ease he was with the whole thing yeah, sometimes he's so relaxed he doesn't even show up or he's a couple of hours late. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's a good comic and I thought he was a good guy and he was on the Comedy Unleashed tour. Now he's turned against us. Uh, so that's his choice. And the other one was Stop Funding Hate. Our old friends, they started trying to take down GB before it even started, such as their omnipotence and prescience. But they they picked up a clip from little old me and actually I'm slightly misrepresented in the quote. It was a clip about the 0.5% trans and non-binary people, my favorite famous peanut allergy analogy and of course as i said in the clip it's not that trans and non-binary people are uh, you know there's so few of them they're not trying to sort of derail society necessarily but activists act you know using them as a sort of battering ram are trying to do that but of course that's that's context and who wants context when you're just attacking people so stop funding hate put gb news were previously called out for demonizing trans people at every opportunity linking to pink news oh that's your source is it you're just linked to says my dad you know now they're airing claims that our whole society has been brought to its knees by trans people and that's what they claim my claim is is this really what pet plan uk and virgin media want to support i didn't even know they were supporting them but they're using me to try and Take away advertisers from GB, isn't that shocking? Is so, it is it ver, is it that Virgin Media are advertising, or is it that you can get GB News if oh yeah. Virgin is your? Oh, they want it off provider. the whole. Yeah, off the whole. It, yeah, maybe they just they want it blocked on madness. You know, Virgin. I only Internet. saw that because someone tagged me, and I mean, it's just they didn't even tag me. But how do you know that they were referring to your? Because um, because they they are quote tweeting the clip that says Nick Dixon reacts to the Guardian story, and they're okay. and they're quoting. The quote in the clip, so, or, you know, I'm not sure the quote in the clip is exactly what I, the quote, the caption quote is exactly what I said, but, but it's, it might have been. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're but there's no context, you know, they're not linked to the, they are linked I to think, it, you have to watch the whole video, which no one will. I, yeah, I think, I think if, if you're looking for hate, and I, I when you said that you were going to cite a couple of instances of hate you've received in this haters going to hate section this week, I immediately started combing through 
my own Twitter feed to find examples of hatred directed <laughs> at me because I'm even competitive about how hated I am. Yes. Um, and uh, the only thing I could find was, um, so I appeared on um, Mark Stein, which um, Lawrence Fox is um, doing at the moment because Mark's not well, last night to talk about Clarkson's apology um, and the reaction to it by um, Meghan um, and Harry. And uh, someone someone put below, um, Toby Young discovers who the real victims are. And of course, it's him and Lawrence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that, that was the more mild. Anyway. Well, yeah, no, you get far more hate than me, Toby, if you want to play that game. I just I look under any of your clips and I think, why has Toby not blocked all these people? And then I sometimes block some of them just preemptively because they probably wouldn't like me either. <laughs> but um, I got a third bit of hate, though, Toby, and this is a Daily Skeptic-related hate. So I've actually become the deputy editor of the Daily Skeptic. Thank you for that opportunity, Toby. And it's already proving... Well, welcome aboard. Yes. Well, it's already proving... I mean, it's difficult. There's a lot of work because I'm doing so much st- stuff now. I have so many jobs. I'm like a sort of um, ersatz Toby Young, if you will. But but I'm now deputy editor, but I'm also writing three pieces a week. And so, you know, you have to churn out these pieces. And sometimes you do one. And it's happened to some people like Clarkson. Sometimes you do one and it, it doesn't go so well. And this was my piece, A Bridging Too Far, which I thought was a good title and a pretty good piece. And I was arguing that... And we were about to talk about Andrew Bridgen in general. We may as well explain what he's done, which is in case you've been living in a cave, he put out this tweet quoting a cardiologist saying that this was the biggest crime since the Holocaust and he meant the vaccine harms. And my argument was basically, and then he subsequently lost the whip and was removed from the Tory party pretty much. He's like an independent now, isn't he? Anyway, he, so this was a, I thought it was a mistake because obviously I agreed with vaccine harms being a serious issue. I was glad he raised it. And I say that very clearly in the piece. And I think the chief whip's been an idiot. And I, you know, I, I don't like any of that. And I think he was definitely not anti-Semitic. I think that was disgusting from people like Matt Hancock trying to grandstand calling him anti-Semitic. Even, I mean, even Josh Harriet at GB News said it wasn't anti-Semitic. And Josh, you know, thinks most things are anti He thought the word globalism was anti-Semitic. He thinks most things are anti-Semitic. And he said it's not. Though he did find it offensive and didn't like the comparison with the Holocaust. He admitted it wasn't anti-Semitic. So all I said in my piece was, Bridgen's right to raise vaccine harms, but he's given them an easy open goal by comparing it to the Holocaust and just made it easy for them to discredit our side and that that perhaps was not the best approach. I was subsequently attacked. And what's quite galling for me is that at GB News, they were taking a very sort of mainstream line on it, which frustrated me. And I didn't get an opportunity to defend Bridgen there. So I wanted to defend him and I didn't manage to come up. And then on Daily Skeptic, I was attacked for criticizing him, so I can't win. So it was, it was it was astonishing. Anyway, any thoughts, Toby? Yeah, I thought your piece was pretty even-handed, um, and I agree with you that he hasn't helped the cause of raising issues about the vaccines um, in the public square by doing it in this fairly inflammatory way by comparing um, the rollout of the mRNA vaccines to the Holocaust. Um, uh, It it presented an easy target to people who don't want to discuss that issue and would prefer prefer to sweep it under the carpet. Um, uh, And he, you know, he he made it easy to dismiss him. Um, And I think probably set back the cause of um, publicising problems to do with the safety of the mRNA vaccines, uh, set that cause back a bit and, and, and made it harder for the rest of us to get a kind of 
um, respectful public hearing about our concerns about that issue. So, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, it was courageous of him to uh, try and raise those raise that issue in the first place, and he's done a reasonable job of doing that. Um, but by linking that issue to the Holocaust, um, I think he's made it he's made it easier for people who don't want to discuss it for whatever reason to just dismiss those concerns as cranky and extremist and beyond the pale. Yeah, and it's funny that we're agreeing. Maybe I'm becoming more cuck-like as some people would claim and they're agreeing with Toby. Or maybe I'm becoming, you know, smarter like Toby. Who knows which one it is? But I think that analogy was more reasonable back in the peak of COVID madness when people were discussing COVID passports and, you know, Australia seemed to have sort of quarantine camps, whatever they were, and all this madness. I thought then when people did it, I didn't find it particularly offensive. I thought, of course, I'm not Jewish. I thought that's reasonable. I mean, if people are talking about camps, maybe this is not such a bad analogy. And I thought when people were attacking people for making that analogy, that that was a distraction. And actually, why not make the analogy? But in 2023, when you're a prominent politician trying to raise vaccine harms, to me, it just seemed like an obvious just, you know. I suppose the I suppose the argument is that... Um, by comparing things like the harms produced by the mRNA vaccines to the Holocaust, even though he was doing it in order to try and emphasize just how great a crime he believes the vaccine rollout was, it nonetheless feels a bit as though he's trivializing the Holocaust. And I guess the reason for that being taboo is that people don't want the Holocaust to be invoked casually and in everyday political context for the purposes of point scoring or just to kind of add hyperbole to a point you're trying to make. And you can sort of understand that. I hadn't realised, but now realise because somebody pointed it out, that um, relativising the Holocaust, which is comparing contemporary events to the Holocaust that you want to kind of portray as dreadful and objectionable, um, is in fact bracketed with the general crime of Holocaust denial in some European countries, including Germany. And in fact, there is a Holocaust survivor who made, I think, um, uh, made the point that, as you said, many people made when vaccine mandates were first um, enforced across Europe, comparing vaccine mandates to the Holocaust. She um, made the point that when Jews were originally interned, it was supposedly because they were spreading typhus, and it was to protect other. It was to it was to protect public health uh, that they were originally interned. And of course, people who hadn't been vaccinated were never interned. But she felt that um, the isolation of people who hadn't been vaccinated by excluding them from certain venues, um, excluding them from having certain jobs and so forth. And in Austria, they were going to start fining people who hadn't been vaccinated. She said that was like the beginnings of the rise of Nazism and the it was it was it was sort of the the um it, it was reminiscent of some of the events which eventually led to the Holocaust. She was a Holocaust survivor saying that, and she is being prosecuted in Germany for Holocaust denial for making that analogy. Yeah, that's appalling. I mean, the fact that she should be prosecuted. Yes, it starts with public health and obsession with purity and so on. That's terrible. But the, this idea that's trivialising it. Yeah, I, I question that part as well because. He was using it. He was invoking it precisely because of its horrific properties. He's trying to say, this is the most serious thing I can think of. 
And the, the current issue I'm trying to raise is incredibly serious, hence I'm going to use it. And like you say, yes, some people find that in itself offensive, but I think that part is not... Yeah, that part, I sort of understand what he was doing there. It was certainly not his intention. But yeah, my point is simply tactically. Maybe it's there's something vulgar about raising tactics publicly like I did in my article, because maybe we're not supposed to, but people employ tactics all the time. And I was just saying tactically, it wasn't very smart, but maybe people don't want to hear that. I think they... in. If, if you if you if you express any reservations about Andrew Bridgen and don't treat him as the kind of Greta Thunberg of the vaccine skeptic movement, you're thought to be on the other side in some way. You know, people people who are prone to believing conspiracy theories think that if you say that, you are obviously controlled opposition. You're in the pay of the WEF, Big Pharma, Bill Gates, whatever. And you're 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 trying to demonize Andrew Bridgen, not because you have any reservations about the manner in which he's raised these concerns, but because you're trying to join people, encourage even people who are skeptics to dismiss him now and punish him for for essentially raising this issue. I mean James Dellingpole, when I when I took basically your your position in London calling yesterday, freaked out and kind of was very dismissive of those reservations and thought I was just typical teeing it typical cuck by 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 expressing any doubts about uh, the manner in which Andrew Bridgen has gone about prosecuting this campaign. Yeah, and I've probably been more extreme in some of my statements at other times, but I think what's happened perhaps with me and people say, oh, Nick's, maybe Nick, Nick's selling out. I think it's the opposite. I think I, I'm taking it so seriously that I'm like, what's actually going to work here? And because I work at GB with all these lefties and, you know, I, I'm speaking to people like Josh and I'm speaking to all the people find that funny, but behind the scenes at GB is loads of lefties and woke people and on the screen as well because I'm speaking to all these people and I know all these sort of various normies in my football team, whoever it is, you think, well, this is just so beyond the pale for them that we're never going to win like this. You know, we're not going to get this issue of vaccine harms out. So of course we want to be, we want to, we're very passionate about it, but yeah, I I suppose you just become more realistic hanging out with these people and you realize, Mm -hmm. well, if if they all hate this so much, if GB don't want to even defend Andrew Bridgen, then how can that be a good tactic? That's what I was thinking. And I guess, I guess it's, um, you know, one, I think, better argument that those criticizing us for criticizing Andrew Bridgen could make is, well, okay, maybe Andrew Bridgen, you know, you you might want a more respectable um, uh, spokesperson to, you know, f- f- for, for vaccine, for concerns about the vaccine. Um, but even when more respectable people have come along and raised those concerns, like Dr. Asim Malhotra, um, the people who want to defend the vaccines have been very quick to dismiss them too. I mean, he couldn't really be, you know, more respectable. He's an NHS consultant, I believe, an eminent cardiologist, and had previously been a vaccine enthusiast and had appeared on breakfast television, BBC breakfast television, encouraging people to get vaccinated. And it was only, as I'm sure most of our listeners know the story, it was only when his father unexpectedly and suddenly died following, I think, his second um, dose of one of the vaccines, that he began to look into vaccine harms in more detail and concluded that um, there is a, a really important safety signal here that needs to be properly investigated. And until it has been, I think for the under 65s, the vaccine should not be administered. Um, uh, you couldn't really hope for someone more respectable, better credentialed than Dr. Asim Malhotra. And he's been dismissed, not quite with the same 
um, aggressive militancy that Andrew Bridgen was last week. But nonetheless, he's still been dismissed as a crank and a conspiracy theorist and as someone who's massaged and cherry-picked the data and the rest of it. So he, he kind of does beg the question, well, who who would be someone that the normies who, who, who've been vaccinated and are very reluctant to discuss any concerns about vac- Who would be someone that they would take seriously? I mean, I suppose if Chris Whitty or Patrick Balance stood up and said, you know what? We may have we may have oversold these vaccines, and if you're under sixty five and don't have an underlying health condition, maybe don't take the booster. Maybe then people would sit up and listen. But even then, they probably think, "Who's got to them? You know, <laughs> why have they suddenly changed their minds and yeah. quickly dismiss them as conspiracy theorists?" You're probably right, and that is, perhaps is the flaw in the argument. I'm imagining that Ridgen would pick up all sorts of undecided people without just this sloppy, pointless tweet, which barely added anything. And took away a lot. So yeah, but then again, like you say, maybe they would always just find something to discredit him. Interesting. I'm 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 open to different ideas as long as people respect uh, you know express things respectfully, which they often didn't in some of the comments on that piece. But anyway, <laughs> um, do you want to quickly do our first advert, Toby? Because we've got a few ads. Sure. Today. So I'm going to do our first ad, and it's um, a new ad. Um, so we've got three this week. So. Um, uh, it's fact, we're definitely establishing our bona fides as the audience for the weekly skeptic grows our bona fides with people who want to advertise and i think we can we can squeeze in even more than 3 but 3's pretty good um and this one is an ad for the jasmine sari which is a political thriller by someone called philip tucker uh, as a former counterterrorism officer serving in asia Somerset-based author Philip Tucker has used his experiences at the front line of terrorism for the basis of his second novel, The Jasmine Sari, available now on Amazon. With over 30 years as a detective and a counter-terrorism consultant, Philip injects a much-needed police perspective into his terrorism thriller that creates an authentic and impressive novel. Speaking about The Jasmine Sari, Philip explains this book is different in that it focuses on the mantra that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. The action is examined from both points of view, and it looks at radicalization through the frailty of those who are drawn to die for a cause. Written with genuine insight, The Jasmine Sari is an evocative and fast-paced thriller that explores the complexities of terrorism. Seasoned London anti-terror cop Alex Cadman is sent to Bangladesh to share his experience with local police officers. He thinks his days of working on terrorist investigations are long gone. After all, he has enough on his hands dealing with the arrogantly talented Sam Konoski, the academic terrorism expert with whom Cadman must now work. In the midst of protests about anti-Muslim cartoons, Dakar, Bangladesh's bustling capital, becomes an increasingly tense and dangerous place to be. So Cadman seeks haven in the Foreigners Club. There he meets the enigmatic Jasmina, the policewoman who beguiles him with her charm and baffles him with her forthright politics. But there's no escape for Cadman. Terrorism has followed him from London to South Asia, while colonialism seems never to have died in the luxurious Foreigners Club. He soon finds himself embroiled in an investigation that is a race against time. Can he identify the terrorists and their plot before tragedy strikes? The Jasmine Sari by Philip Tucker is available now on Amazon, and it's free on Kindle if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. And can I just add, the book is slightly shorter than the advert, (laughs) which Toby (laughs) Toby read so we read like half the book there. But yeah, that, I'll probably have to check that out because I've been checking out all our advertisers, which I'll get on to later when we read our other ones. But 
I'll probably have to, I'm going to have to vet all our advertisers and I'll be reading endless books, but that's great. So yeah, thank you for, for how, did, how did that one get in touch with us? Do you, do you know? He, no, I think he, he's a listener to the weekly oh, podcast brilliant. and he heard us say, you know, if you want to advertise on the weekly podcast, get in touch and he got in touch. Oh, well, thank you very much for listening. And hopefully you'll continue to advertise because yes, as you say, we are growing. We are, we are, we're, we're smashing our, all our download records and I'm not just being a, a Trump about it. That's absolutely true. Okay, do you want to move on to, while we're talking about Tory politicians, Steve Baker. So Steve Baker got in, involved in some woke cringe uh, this week. And I've actually written another piece about this called The End of Ideology, where I, I touched upon this uh, for The Daily Skeptic. And Baker put out this strange tweet, which got people quite irked on Twitter. He said, as part of my New Year's resolutions, I pledge to be an ally to the LGBT plus community. We must continue to support the LGBT plus community and continue to work to ensure that our society is one where LGBT plus people can live their lives free from hate. And people didn't like this because it sounded, of course, like woke dribble. And we do like Steve Baker. I've met him. Good guy. He's a Christian. I've had a few messages with him. Sorry, Steve. I, I do like you as a person, but I don't understand the tweet. Everyone on our sort of side got quite annoyed by it and said, what are you doing? Then he replied to that with a, a piece called My Thoughts on Tolerance. And he was saying, you know, why did this really wind people up so much? It was just an elected member of a parliament expressing the view that a community should be able to live their lives free from hate. Why is this, un- why is this controversial? You know, and he goes on to say, is it so bad that he used the word ally? Well, it kind of is, Steve. Because you're using their words, and they have co-opted a lot of words. I mean, even hate. When you hear hate, you think of like Meghan and Harry saying some nonsense. You know, problematic. Listen and learn. Educate yourself. There's all these phrases they've stolen, and when you use them like that, you you just do sound like one of them, of course. So it's bound to get some pushback. Also, what is all this hate that's happening? He says in the piece that people in his team still experience hate all the time, and you're thinking. Maybe, but you know, we've got Stonewall, we've got BBC Pride. It seems to have got those rainbow flags all down the street. It seems to most people like this is the new kind of you know oppressive ideology we all have to engage with, and we don't mean gay people or something. We mean the sort of rainbow ideology, and that's of course why people didn't like the tweet. And I'll get your thoughts on this, Toby. I mean, just just briefly. I mean, there's a question of why he did it as well. I know you have some theories on that, and my theory is just we're in this. Uh, world now where the politicians claim to be in a kind of post-ideological world and all they talk about is competence but really it's it's just the hegemony of left-wing ideas ever since Blair continued by Cameron and and all we are is in a left-wing hegemony where they say okay we, we've accepted all these leftist premises we've capitulated on that completely now all we're going to try and do is manage the decline slightly better while pretending we're not ideologues if if Liz Truss tries to lower the tax rate we'll say she's an ideologue and she'll be attacked on those grounds and this Claire Perry O'Neill I think is her name recently said the same. She's a former Theresa May uh, minister. She said, you know, she, she said Labour are competent and whereas the Tories are sort of ideologues. So ideologues are the new attack. But really, it's just that leftism has won. That was my take on it. But you had a slightly different take, I think. Yeah, well, first of all, um, yeah, I don't think Steve got to the nub of the issue as to what was objectionable about the tweet. Um, and I think, you know, you can pretend the reason people objected to it is because, um, you know, they're homophobes and transphobes or um, uh, but, but, and he didn't really pretend that to be fair, but but or, or that they're allergic to kind of woke language. But I think the, the objection to the tweet, which 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 he doesn't really get to the nub of in his piece, but you glancingly referred to in what you just said, is the implication that 
um, uh, people in the LGBT community, LGBT plus community, um, are still still are still surrounded by hate. Uh, they still experience hatred every day, uh, and this is a serious problem in our society that we need to address. That 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 idea that we're still a pretty backward country where gays, lesbians, transgender people are, you know, subject to hate routinely, day in, day out, and can barely go about living their lives without experiencing this tsunami of hate. That is part of the rationale for um, wokery, for all the unconscious bias training and anti-racism training, the employment of EDI officers across the public sector. And um, I've just written about this in The Spectator, written about why it was that Steve tweeted this and why, you know, what 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 some people's reservations are about it. Um, and interestingly, the Conservative Way Forward group, I think we've talked about this on a previous episode, um, they submitted FOI requests to over 6,000 companies to try and find out how many equity, diversity and inclusion officers are employed in the public sector and how much it's costing the taxpayer. And they discovered that in the public sector, over 10,000 of these diversity crats are now employed at a cost to the taxpayer of over half a billion pounds a year. And the irony is that the Conservative Way Forward group is chaired by one Steve Baker. So, you know, on the one hand, he's chairing this group that is laying bare the extent of the woke capture of the public sector, and in particular, the civil service. And on the other hand, he's kind of behaving like someone who's been captured by repeating the rationale behind the employment and the expenditure on all these EDA officers, which is that we still live in a society in which minorities are routinely being persecuted, and we need to address that. And I looked up you know, um, some survey data to see, well, just how difficult is it for people in the LGBT plus community uh, to live in the United Kingdom? And according to um, uh, the Williams Institute's LGBTI Global Acceptance Index, uh, which looks at how accepted people in those communities are, how socially accepted they are, and how well-respected their rights are. And the UK is ranked ninth. That is, it's in the top 10, ninth out of 175 countries in the world. And you know, let's not beat around the bush. If you are a member of one of those communities, the UK is one of the safest places in the world you could live. Um, and we don't need to be spending upwards of half a billion pounds a year on employing EDI officers to force people to undergo unconscious bias training in order to reduce the amount of hatred that people in the LGBT plus communities are experiencing every day, because actually, this is a pretty good place to live if you if you are in one of those minorities. And it was just, it was just slightly irritating that, um, that Steve Baker, who chairs this group that published this fantastic eye-opening report about the extent of this woke capture, should himself, almost in the next breath, um, uh, demonstrate that he has himself seemingly been captured. Motive. I think his motive was, um, maybe this is a bit cynical, um, but and it was actually not my theory. It was pointed out by a contributor to the Daily Skeptic in one of our Daily Skeptic WhatsApp groups. Um, he, his theory is, and I think it's probably right, um, or at least there's something in it, is that Steve Baker is in a marginal constituency 
Wickham. Um, his majority has been declining. Um, and at the last general election, 2019, his majority was just over 4,000. If there is a swing to Labour, as the polls indicate there will be, um, uh, next year, or possibly at the beginning of 2025, he will in all probability lose his seat. So he's probably thinking about, well, how am I going to get a job uh, when I lose my job um, in Parliament? Um, and he worked in the tech sector before he worked in part, before he got elected to Parliament in 2010. He was at one stage a chief technology officer. He's been a software engineer. And the tech sector is completely captured. It is one of the wokest areas of the private sector. Um, and he's probably thinking, well, you know, I've been the leader of the Spartans. I resisted every attempt by Theresa May to reach a compromise with the EU. I voted against gay marriage in 2013. Um, some people had me down as a climate change denier because I'm a climate realist and I used to be on the board of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I might have difficulty when confronted by a blue-haired, labour-voting, 20-something HR officer when I apply for a job at a big tech company next year. But if I can point to that tweet, then I can, I can say, I, you know, you can't condemn me in every dimension. Um, at least I stood up for the LGBT plus community. Look at this tweet. I've always been an ally to that community, etc. So I think he's thinking about how to shore up his woke credentials because he's worried that he's going to be back on the job market, looking for a job in the tech sector, confronted by a blue-haired, Tory-hating HR officer, possibly as soon as 12 months' time. And this will be a way of trying to diffuse, detoxify himself when he is in that interview. Yeah, and, and that was very interesting because I thought I was being cynical, saying this was a capitulation to leftism and a, and, a, and a crass attempt to get elected for the Tories. And, you know, how can we possibly stay relevant? Oh, we're going to have to do it by just becoming lefties. But it was the even more cynical idea of future employment prospects. So as cynical yes. as I go, there's always another layer. Maybe I've, I've out cynical. Do you want know I me? Mean? I don't mean to be too mean about Steve Baker here. I mean, like you, I've, I, you know, I, I'm a fan of his and... He's done a lot to advance many of the causes I believe in. He's a Thatcherite, you know, on economic issues. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if I was facing the prospect of being a shelf stacker in Sainsbury's next year, I might well go woke just to shore up my credentials of getting something a bit better. Um, uh, but uh, incidentally, Nick, I think this is also something like this. This may be a factor in why Rishi Sunak has announced he's going to bring forward or the government's going to bring forward a ban on conversion therapy and a full spectrum ban, um, uh, 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 which which may mean that, you know, if you if you challenge your child's self-diagnosis as trans and if you say, do you really want to uh, start taking puberty blockers or, you know, embark on an irreversible medical pathway that you could be prosecuted for trying to convert them back to being cis. Um, uh, so it's a, it, it, it's a really, I think, horrendous um, piece of legislation. But Rishi Sunak has said the government is now going to bring this forward. And maybe part of his thinking is that a lot of Conservative MPs who are terrified that they're going to lose their seats at the next general election will want to be able to point to something, particularly those elected in 2019, when they're asked, well, what did you achieve by the blue-haired Labour voting HR officer, what did you achieve in your five years in Parliament? They'd be able to say, I got conversion therapy banned. And that might impress her. And that may be the reason, you know, he may be under a lot of pressure to 
to throw something, throw a bone to that crowd of recently elected Tories who are terrified they're going to lose their seats next year. Um, and they want they want something to be able to point to to impress potential woke employers when they're back on the job market. Yeah, definitely a highly plausible theory. All right, we've dealt with that quite depressing topic. I thought we'd move on to another quite annoying one, which is Clarkson's Grand Apology Tour, as I'm calling it, in a sort of clever little reference there, because we've covered Clarkson's walk of shame, but this is Clarkson's sort of second walk of shame. He's issued this apology. Amazon put pressure on him because of what he said about Megan in his satirical Game of Thrones column that didn't go down very well because morons didn't realize it was a Game of Thrones reference and they all pretended he was evil and deserved to go to prison. But Amazon have now leaned on him. He's now issued another apology in what looks like a probably failed attempt to rescue his Amazon career. And he said, I really am sorry, all the way from the balls of my feet to the follicles on my head. And um, of course, this has been met with wonderful grace by Meghan and Harry. Uh, Just kidding, lol. It's a red rag to the woke ball. And they've said, while a new public apology has been issued today by Mr. Clarkson, what remains to be addressed is his longstanding pattern of writing articles that spread hate rhetoric, dangerous conspiracy theories and misogyny. Unless each of his other pieces were also written in hurry, as he states, it's clear that this is not an isolated incident shared in haste, but rather a series of articles shared in hate. And I thought actually overshared in hate could be Harry's next book title because, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. One, to accuse them of hate. I mean, what does Harry do in his book? I mean, he hates Rebecca Brooks and many other people. But also, you can't apologize to these people. You apologize. As I said on GB, they have no mechanism for forgiveness. You're apologizing to ideologues. They're woke ideologues. You're you're apologizing to the mob. None of these these are not rational actors. They just want, they just smell blood and it will get worse. Now, of course, that's if we take Clarkson at face value. If we go the more cynical angle that he's just trying to save his job on Amazon, which seems quite likely, that's more interesting because will this even work? Probably not. But but what does that imply? Well, to me, it implies that actually Amazon are quite worried about their, their, their social perception and their sort of and this whole woke social engineering thing. Because lefties will tell you, or woke people will tell you, no, no, corporations only care about evil profit. They're just cartoonish, greedy corporations that will just want profit. And I think now the profit motive is looking like something quite quaint and old because they put out all these woke movies. They know they're going to, well, they don't know necessarily, but they all tank at the box office, but they keep doing it. And to me, Companies are more like China now. They're sort of like, okay, we need to build prosperity, but we also need to control the people. So what I'm trying to say is, are Amazon really just worried about profit? Because if they were, why would they cancel one of their most bankable stars? Now, you said to me yesterday, well, maybe they think, you know, staying on board with Megan will get them more subscribers and they'd lose subscribers otherwise. And I question that. I think Clarkson has a big following. There's very little crossover with the Megan following. They basically hate each other. But the Megan people will carry on buying whatever it is they buy on Amazon how to disguise your narcissism and books like that, maybe. And the Clarkson fans will carry on watching Clarkson. I think they're doing it because of the perception of the company. So Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Why does he do this? Because he wants influence. Influence is now a much greater currency than the devalued, inflated, printed dollar. He wants influence. And he also, as you said yesterday, which I do accept, wants his to be, to be at his woke dinner parties and so on. So they have to get rid of Clarkson. But on pure dollars and cents, you wouldn't do it. Any thoughts, Toby? Yeah, well, um, it looks as though Amazon have have got two more seasons uh, of Clarkson TV shows in the cans. They've got another season of The Grand Tour and they've got another season of Clarkson's Farm. What they've said is that we are unlikely 
to commission further seasons. So they haven't completely committed to not doing so. So it may be, as you say, partly to try and um, persuade them uh, not to rule out commissioning further seasons if the next two are successful. And you know, he's probably thinking about his co-workers too. It's not just his career that's um, at stake. Um, but also he hasn't yet lost his gig as the presenter of Millionaire on ITV. So that's still in play. And he also hasn't resumed writing his son column um, since that column appeared. Um, uh, so it may be that he's trying to cling on to his son column as well. Um, uh, and doesn't he still have a column in the Sunday Times? Or, or maybe that's gone. I can't remember. Anyway, um, but um, yeah, to your question about um, why is it that um, Amazon may have made the decision um, not to commission any more TV shows from Clarkson. It can't just be about profits. I'm sure it isn't just about profits. Um, uh, it's, 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 I think it's about once you, once you, I think, uh, you know, who knows if Jeff Bezos was involved in the decision, but um, certainly senior executives, I think that, that, that they, they want to be seen to be on the right side of history, to be promoting the right values, not to be on the side of the oppressors and so on and so forth. Um, it, it's, it's that. It, it, it's, it, for them, it's not just about making money. I'm sure that's very important. It's also about social status. I mean, that's why they want to be rich in the first place. So they can, you know, they can get invited to the right dinner parties, go to the right parties, go on fantastic holidays where they can hang out with the, the kind of, you know, the, um, um, gold collar set, um, uh, 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 and in order in order to, I, I remember thinking. So this 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 first struck me, uh, or as actually was pointed out to me. I didn't even come up with it myself. When Graydon Carter, my then boss at Vanity Fair, um, he used to be a real cynic and very funny with it. Um, uh, you know, a wise cracking cynic, like a kind of newspaper reporter out of a Hollywood screwball black and white comedy like His Girl Friday and great company. Um, uh, and then about midway through my time at Vanity Fair, this is in the late 90s, he suddenly became a liberal. Like overnight, he became this liberal who was concerned about US foreign policy. He was concerned about the race question. And it wasn't in the... Woke was, you know, a, a twinkle in the eye of grievance studies professors at that point. But, you know, the nursery slopes of woke. And he suddenly came out as, you know, the equivalent of a social justice warrior. And I remember asking someone who knew him quite well, what, why is he doing this? And it said, it's, it's, he said, it's so he has something other than who's going to be on the next cover of Vanity Fair at dinner parties with kind of studio executives and movie stars in Hollywood. You know, those are the circles he wants to move in. He wants to break into Hollywood as a producer. And at dinner parties, he's fed up with just talking about, you know, um, who's going to be on the next cover of Vanity Fair and how the last issue sold and the rest of it. He wants to be able to join in these other grown-up conversations. And in order to join in, join in those conversations, you have to be liberal and you have to express the right values. It's partly about that. It's social. It's about taking on the colouring of the um, uh, circles in which they want to move. And that's really the, that's that's part of the success of organizations like the WEF um, and, you know, all these international globalist woke promoters of progressive orthodoxy, they've made it so you have to sign up to this whole agenda if you're going to be if you're going to be able to move uh, in these elevated social circles now. It's very hard to be a conservative and to move in those circles. I remember saying to um, 
uh, an American professor who'd been targeted for cancellation. Why don't we try and organize alumni? You know, let's get people giving large sums of money to US universities to threaten to withhold that money unless the universities do more to stand up for free speech. You know, let's hit them where it hurts. That will be an effective campaigning mechanism. And she said it won't work because for the most part, it's men giving money to American universities and their wives who are typically 20 years younger than them onto their second or third wives. They're members of these liberal book clubs. They're doing these white fragility courses. Um, They will threaten to withhold sex from their husbands if they embark on any kind of conservative pro-free speech crusade by withholding, threatening to withhold money from the colleges they were at. You know, uh, their wives hold the power in the relationship. And they're all completely woke, completely captured. And I think it's true. The wives are concerned about maintaining their social status, going to the right balls, being on the right fundraising committees, um, uh, being invited to the right holiday homes. And in order to move in those circles, you have to be woke now. And I'm sure that's partly what's prompting people like Bezos and senior executives in Amazon to kind of have reservations about recommissioning um, uh, Clarkson. Wow, it all comes down to beta males, Toby, who are whipped by their wives. Tate was right. Our great hero and martyr, Top G, was right. I mean, you're just worrying about your wife getting getting some off your wife. So you just, therefore, you just destroy politics in the Western world. And that's absolutely shocking, but probably true. And it also reminds me, another thing Tate was right about that, the other point in there, that wealth is banal compared to power. That's what really what we're talking about is power versus wealth. One thing is to build yeah. wealth via Amazon, whatever, but power is the real game. Go on. One thing to be said in Clarkson's, um, uh, in defense of Clarkson's apology, I mean, everyone is saying, why did he apologize? He must have known in advance that it wouldn't make any difference and that it was likely to be um, aggressively rejected by Harry and Meghan, which has duly happened. But actually, it probably has helped a little bit in restoring, you know, his um, in making people slightly more sympathetic to him and maybe even executives at Amazon and ITV and The Sun more sympathetic to him because he's done the decent thing. He's apologized in an apparently sincere and heartfelt way. And it's just been ungraciously dismissed by Harry and Meghan, who've doubled down. And in a way, maybe maybe you could you can see, you know, the head of ITV thinking, that, well, you know, he, he did do the right thing and they've been pretty ungracious and kind of petty about it. Let's give him another chance. You, you can imagine it working quite well from that point of view. So if the purpose of the apology is not to get the people you're apologizing to, to accept it and forgive you, but to make the people who've condemned you a little bit more sympathetic and a little bit less sympathetic to the people that are performing all this outrage, then maybe it's worked. That's an interesting point. I mean, my friend, Sean Walsh, who is a great guy and is incredibly talented as a stand-up comedian, if you've ever seen him live, and in many other things. But he has had to go on this kind of very careful thing of like he got cancelled for, for being on Strictly Come Dancing and, and kissing the hot dancer on the show where everyone kisses the hot dancer. But he, I mean, it's even called the Strictly Curse. But he's had to sort of work his way back and now he's allowed to go in the jungle. This is how these things work. You sort of have to gradually work your way back. So I see what you mean. Yeah, Clarkson's done this, made this mistake. But now if he gradually says the right things, but, Toby, the problem is he's now just a groveling mess. This is his third apology. There's the initial Twitter apology, the Christmas apology he emailed to them, now this novella-length apology. And to me, he's just the start of his grand apology tour. He's going to abandon the farm and go on this grand apology tour. He hasn't gone the whole hog and said, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to commit to re-educating myself and I've, and I've undertaken to 
um, take this course and that course and I'm going to undergo a period of reflection. I mean, it's a kind of, it, that's partly, I imagine, why the apology wasn't accepted by Harry and Meghan. He's, it's not quite full-throated enough, is it? He's only gone down on one knee. He hasn't thrown himself at their feet. Yeah, I'd like to see Clarkson, and this is a good Amazon series, Clarkson and Jordan Peterson at a re-education camp and uh, day one, they all arrive, and Peterson's like, well, what are you in here for? <laughs> They're both in Ontario. And they, that, yeah, like, like, they, that, that's like, it'd be a, a great reality show. I mean, that's a reality show. I would, so you've I would been cancelled. This is a great so idea. So you've been cancelled. Brilliant idea. Yeah. I think I had a did I have a similar idea before about cancelled celebrity jungle. Yeah. But I've just yeah, come up with a, yeah. a different, better title for it. Well, that, basically, that that is I'm a celeb, isn't it? I mean, more or less. Yeah, your friend Sean Walsh was on it. I mean, some of the other people on it are people who'd like Boy George um uh prosecuted for sexual assault uh you know it is a bit like so you've been cancelled isn't it yeah um now my other idea was be, culture it, war i can't remember the name but it was it was it was it was it was you in the house with farage against ash sarko and some of the and you had to do tasks and compete against each other and sometimes yeah. together and sometimes ash sarko's holding your rope and you're wondering if she'll drop it that's one of idea <laughs> i've got i can't remember my name for that but now i've got so you've been cancelled which is the cancelled jungle yeah, I mean, it would be it, 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 the the yeah, so you've been cancelled. The, the way the way to differentiate it from I'm a celeb would be people who've been cancelled not for unspeakable acts of betrayal and faithlessness and assault and the rest of it, but people who've been cancelled for just saying the wrong thing, for exercising their lawful right to free speech, for being non woke. So, boy, George wouldn't get in for doing actual bad things. Not, not a bad idea. <laughs> All right, I think we've absolutely nailed that Clarkson topic. Do you think I should just uh, bash out our second ad now, Toby? Yes. Because we have a very good ad from um, my friend Dan Gaskin, and it goes as follows. Apparently, the most depressing day of the year occurred this week, Blue Monday. But don't be down. Dan Gaskin is here with more financial good cheer. Fellow skeptic, father of six. Yes, I know. He's a Catholic is what he means. A husband of one. An owner of Crest Mortgages, Dan is an ex-Navy warfare officer who's driven big boats, both run and sold a business, and got into fixing finances because he genuinely enjoys making sure people are looked after. To talk through a financial issue that is vexing you, get help with a house move, commercial mortgage, equity release, life assurance, call 0116-502-3000 in complete confidence. Visit crestmortgages.co.uk, and whatever you do, please connect with Dan on LinkedIn because you'll love his cheerful videos. And that's www.linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin, G-A-N, sorry, D-A-N-G-A-S-K-I-N. Let's get that right. He's not called Gan. And we have to quickly say the FCA compliance bit. Crest Mortgages is a trading style of Epiphany Investments Limited, which is an appointed representative of the Open Work Partnership, a trading style of Open Work Limited, which is an authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. We choose to be part of the Open Work Partnership and award-winning network. Your house may be repossessed if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage. Once again, it's 0116-502-3000, crestmortgages.co.uk, linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And Toby, I just want to add that I've chatted to Dan a few times now about my mortgage, my mortgage dream, which is why I'm working myself into the ground for Toby and other people. Uh, and I'm trying to get the mortgage. And he's very knowledgeable, very generous with his time, absolutely top guy, total legend. And he's I wouldn't say full team James. I'd say he's more team Nick, but he's definitely on our side. So I do recommend getting in touch with Dan. He's, his, his specialities is that life assurance, insurance stuff and residential mortgages. But he also does the other things he says there, equity release, commercial mortgages, uh, mortgages for charities, etc. So definitely get in touch with Dan. I'm personally vetting all our uh, ad clients now. So, you know, give him the, the seal of approval. 
Well, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about Thor. We've got one more ad coming up, and that's from Thor. Yes, I've also vetted Thor. We'll do that later. All right, now let's go over to Will Jones for our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will, editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we've got a very vaccine-heavy edition this week. First up, COVID vaccines are obviously dangerous. Sounds like the kind of thing I would say, Will. Yeah, that's right, Nick. We've got a group of five senior Swedish doctors. This is a major intervention from uh, from Sweden. There hasn't been an, an many interventions from Swedish doctors during the pandemic of, about vaccines uh, so far. Uh, and this is one. It's uh, published, uh, first published on The Daily Skeptic uh, this week, uh, a statement from five senior Swedish doctors and um, in collaboration with a digital uh, human rights researcher um, who um, have declared that uh, the COVID vaccines, they say, are obviously dangerous and the rollout should be halted immediately, they say. And they list all the concerns they've seen accumulating with the effects, especially on the immune system, they say, and clotting and inflammation of the heart and other organs and parts of the body um, and causing uh, what they perceive to uh, very, very possibly be uh, significant elevated uh, morbidity and mortality. So that's disease and death. So um, yeah, ma- major significant intervention here. And it's been it went viral on our site and got uh, coming towards uh, 50,000 hits. And it was also picked up uh, by Zero Hedge, where it got another uh, 250,000 uh, hits. So it's, it's really gone viral this week. Um, and it's, it's, and that's good, because it's, it's good to get their message out there, because they're, they're taking taking a risk by standing up uh, for the truth on this and raising the alarm. And um, it's been good. All right. We could do with a bit more of that. And let's do this one. Japan's experts baffled by high COVID deaths. Yeah, and not just high COVID deaths. They've also they've been baffled particularly because they, they say that even though so they're, they're heavily vaccinated, it's one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, far more than the UK. They've had far, far more enthusiastic take up of boosters, uh, third booster, fourth booster, th- fourth dose, fifth, uh, fifth dose. Uh, so they've really gone for it. And, and their experts have been baffled because the, the, co- the deaths with COVID, so that's with a positive PCR test, have remained really high. In fact, each wave of deaths in the last uh, tw- 12 months has been larger than the previous one. And what's, and what's also baffled them is that they have, and that many of them, most of them haven't had traditional COVID symptoms. So they're COVID positive deaths, but a lot of them are dying from, from heart and circulatory, circulatory problems. Um, and so they're, and so they're, they're, they're baffled by this. Uh, other medics in Japan have started to suspect that it may not just be COVID, that the vaccines may be playing uh, a role in this, a part in this. And uh, even since we published this article a few days ago, some more medics, uh, senior medics and scientists in Japan have started to raise questions. So uh, there's, there's, that's a developing story, um, I'd say, Nick, and uh, there'll be, uh, we'll be talking about that again, I'm sure. OK, what about this one? FDA vaccine committee member calls for end to mass COVID vaccinations. Yeah, so it's a real week for the for the vaccines this week. Uh, not not a good one for the uh, for those who support the vaccines. Uh, this is Paul Offit, a, a very senior uh, medic and scientist in um, in America. He is a vaccine uh, committee member for the FDA. That's the body uh, that authorizes and approves uh, drugs in uh, the United States. Um, and he has come out and he has said that he is not uh, going to have a booster himself again. And he's also said that we need to stop. 
uh, these boosters, and he he doesn't actually say that they're unsafe, uh, which is interesting. He 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 go he doesn't go into that. He's just looking at efficacy, um, and he's looked at the latest data. He's actually honestly looked at the latest data and said this is just no good. And and he's also said that he's that he that he's angry because when Moderna presented its data to the FDA committee to his to his committee um, a few, uh, the, in 2022 for the bivalent booster that's the one that was meant to work against omicron as well they they did not they did not show them all the data they had and they withheld the data that showed that the infection rates were higher in those who'd had the the bivalent booster than in those who had not um, and that was kept from them. So it's uh, is a scandal as well as a um, as him t- changing his view. So uh, so so a major major intervention. But what what difference will it make? We don't know uh, because he is just one uh, committee member. So it remains to be remains to be seen. The United States, of course, still uh, requiring vaccination and boosters in many parts in many in, in for universities in many jobs. And um, and also unvaccinated are still unable to enter the country. So um, yeah, they're they're vaccine obsessed in the United States. So we need to we need to see some change there, and this uh, will hopefully be part of that. Yeah, absolute madness. Well, that's our vaccine trifecta done. Now let's throw a little bit of climate in there. Global warming trend slumps after pausing for twenty of the last twenty four years. Will. Yeah, this is our uh, climate editor, uh, our environment editor, uh, Chris Morrison, writing about a. The global warming trend, we've now had uh, eight years, and we talked about this um, last time, I think the eight years and four months uh, without any without any global warming. Uh, it's a, another long pause. Um, and this is uh, reflecting on the fact that this is uh, this is the second pause in the last 24 years. There was also an, ex- an even longer pause of, of lack of global warming up to around 2015. And then there was a, a rise in temperature uh, for, a, for a couple of years. But over 20 out of the last 24 years, um, there has been no uh, movement, no upward movement in the in the global average temperature. And so the trend uh, now that's the um, that's the uh, the average amount that it's that the temperature is has been going up uh, on average per per decade um, is now very very low, well below what the models and the predictions and all the alarm the alarmist modelling has been uh, has been predicting. So um, w- will it make a difference? It's it's hard to say. You've probably noticed that they mainly focus these days on the so called extreme weather where any any weather that's a, a little bit worse than normal somehow gets blamed on humans. Um, but um, so that even in the mainstream, there's, there seems to be more emphasis on so-called extreme weather than on, on how hot it's supposedly getting because the, the data just isn't there for them. Yeah, I have noticed that. All right, let's do this interesting one from Nick Rendell, which was, will Dr. Asim Malhotra's appearance be the BBC's most viewed programme of 2023? Yep, so... Uh, uh, one of our contributors, uh, Nick Rendell, had noticed that the uh, that Doctor Asim Malhotra's appearance on the BBC. He managed to. He was on the BBC this week. It was about statins. He's a, a leading cardiologist, uh, well known, um, and he somehow managed to get on there. Some some BBC researcher um, obviously didn't know that he was now a. Uh, a, a non-welcome person in the mainstream after speaking out on the vaccines, or maybe they uh, snuck him in there in knowingly. We don't we don't know, but he managed to get on, and while he was on there, uh, surprised the interviewer uh, by uh, by talking about the effect of the vaccines on the heart and and their possible role in uh, in the current wave of excess heart deaths. 
And this has, has gone viral, as you would expect, millions and millions of views um, of uh, Dr. Malhotra's t- tweet about it and the video that he put up showing the clip uh, and uh, tw- 20 million um, or more. And uh, Nick noticed that uh, this was in excess of the BBC's usual top watched programs. Now, of course, it's not it's not a full program, so you, perhaps um, we can't we're not comparing like for like. We're comparing viral clips to um, to full programs. But even so, a remarkable remarkable fact that this viral clip is is far exceeding the usual top viewing figures for the BBC. Um, and and it, and he mischievously noted that it may well be the uh the top watched bbc program uh this year yeah which would be absolutely hilarious all right thanks for those will and we'll catch up with you again next week great thanks nick and now back to me and toby all right so toby do you want to briefly discuss davos you raised this with me earlier in the week uh davos is happening again klaus schwab is out there schwabbing it up and I've written an article which might be pertinent to this, which is uh, called Cock Up and, or Conspiracy, probably a bit of both. Toby actually came up with the title. But it's my article, and it's, it's, a, it's a great article. Check it out on dailyskeptic.org. But Toby, where do, where, do we have different opinions on WEF? I basically am against it and think it's very, very bad. I don't know if it, as a conspiracy moderate, which I lay out in the article, I'm always open to both sides and being equally skeptical to both sides. However, on the WEF, I am pretty red-pilled. I do think they're totally evil. I think Schwab might be a front for an even more evil person. He might not be the mega, he might be the pantomime villain wearing the ridiculous onesie at the front. So, you know, they may have a bit less power, but I do think they're evil globalist forces. But your, what's your take? Is it more like, oh, they're just an overhyped think tank? Well, I think that um, certainly uh, I, I disagree with the WEF's policy agenda. Um, and um, I think that trying to implement that agenda or persuade, influence governments around the world to implement it um, without first putting it to the ballot box, so evading democratic accountability in the way that people who promote this globalist agenda want to do, I think all of that is reprehensible and it's certainly something I disapprove of um and i and i also don't think that um the influence of the wef has been that much exaggerated i think where i part company with um the james delling polls of this world and i'm not sure whether i part company with you on this is in the mechanics of how klaus Schwab and his cronies go about promoting this particular policy agenda. Um, And um, I think the way they do it is by um, uh, essentially he's an in-house public intellectual uh, for the global elite. He invites them all to Davos each year or they have to pay for the privilege. Um, uh, And through, 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 uh, through a variety of, of, of intellectual influences um, like, uh, yeah, there are a ton of them. Um, that he promotes these particular ideas about um, energy, food, the pandemic, the infodemic, and the rest of it. Um, and the world leaders, the business titans, go away, and um, some of them 
try and implement the kind of policy agenda um, that they've been introduced to, that's been sold to them at Davos um, and in other kind of at other conferences uh, and in other ways. Um, but I, I think that's the extent of um, how Schwab and his billionaire boys club go about promoting their policy agenda. I don't think it goes beyond that. I don't think that they've infiltrated the cabinets of various governments via their kind of young global leaders program. And often Klaus Schwab will claim uh, to have done things like that. And I think I think he's exaggerating his own power as a form of braggadocio because he's, you know, a narcissistic egotist, um, not because it actually reflects the reality of how they go about promoting their agenda. And I think there are kind of three reasons why um, uh, three reasons why I, I, I'm sceptical about this idea that Klaus Schwab and his cronies are puppet masters, essentially uh, dictating to political leaders um, uh, 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 the decisions they should make on these big, important issues that they care about. Um, one is, I mean, if, 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 if that was happening, if there was, you know, if Klaus Schwab or an intermediary was pulling leaders strings through back channels um yeah someone in those governments would have would have leaked that by now you know that that's the most obvious objection i think and and i think it's a strong objection given how leaky governments are given how much how much rivalry there is within the kind of upper echelons of political parties and governments someone would have spilt the beans if klaus schwab or some Flunky was instructing people like Rishi Sunak or Jacinda Ardern um, to take the decisions they're taking. Um, uh, second reason, I mean, if you know anything about high level political decision making, and I don't mean to sound kind of arrogant and pompous here, but if you've been at all close to anyone, you know, in a position of political power, political leader, someone in a cabinet who you're trying to persuade to make a particular decision, um, you realize quite quickly that there are kind of numerous different forces at play. Um, uh, and, you know, the, if, if one particularly powerful and influential person, like a donor to the Conservative Party or a donor to their private office, um, uh, uh, wants them to take a particular decision, yes, they have a certain amount of influence, but it's just one factor amongst many factors, you know, and one of the most important factors is events, you know, they're constantly trying to stay on top of a kind of chaotic flow of unpredictable events and get ahead of them. Um, and that's often far more influential a factor when it comes to these decisions than the wishes of a particularly powerful person. So it's just a naive, it, it reflects, I think, a naive understanding of how politics work, how policymakers work, what forces are at play when these decisions are made to think that one person or one particular coterie could just dictate to political leaders you know what decisions they take and then finally the fact that day-to-day political decisions are often so incoherent and chaotic and contradictory with politicians changing their mind from one minute to the next i mean let's suppose that it was klaus schwab's plan to roll out conversion therapy bans, you know, um, across 
the uh, across Western governments. Why would he have first told Theresa May to say she was going to implement a conversion therapy ban in full, then told Boris Johnson to row back completely on it, and then said to Boris the following day, actually, why don't you only row back on half of it? So you'll say you'll ban conversion therapy for the LGBs, but not the Ts, and then tell Rishi Sunak, actually, why don't you go back to what Theresa May proposed? I mean, it's just... The, the messaging is so chaotic on these issues um, uh, that even though they often end up in similar places and the policy direction is often similar, the kind of day-to-day implementation of these agendas is so chaotic and contradictory and beset by U-turns that the idea that there is some controlling intelligence, some mastermind behind it is just naive, I think. It just doesn't make sense. It, the the cock-up theory makes much more sense. And then, you know, finally, and probably the most important reason, I think, is Klaus Schwab and his cronies don't need to intervene at that kind of micro level in order to make sure their agenda, you know, uh, influences high level political decision making, because it already influences it because they've, they've captured their minds, you know, the group thing that goes on, the desire of these people to be invited again to Davos and be invited to Mystique on their summer holidays and all the rest of it. The same reason we think Jeff Bezos may be thinking he won't recommission another series from Jeremy Clarkson. You know, they've been captured already. The kind of global elite, the gold collar set Davos man, um, uh, they all think pretty much the same way. Um, uh they don't need to be told what to do. They do it spontaneously because they've been completely bewitched um, by these ideas that they've been introduced to at places like Davos, you know, every year. So, you know, it's naive, I think, to imagine not that Klaus Schwab is a very influential figure. Of course he is. But to think that he influences things in a kind of James Bond villain way by blackmailing people and by calling them up and browbeating them or trying to bribe them, or whatever it might be, that I think is for the birds. And finally, you know, if he really was this villainous global influencer, um, why would he dress like a James Bond villain? Why would he do his best to sound like a James Bond villain? I mean, you can come up with all kinds of explanations for that. But, you know, if he really was a Bond villain, he wouldn't seem so like a Bond villain. He'd do something to try and disguise that fact. I don't think it's all part of a kind of double bluff. I think he li- he'd like to think that he has the- he's, a- he's a kind of blowfelt figure um, who controls with his strings all these political leaders and all these cabinets around the world. But that's just his own egotistical fantasy. Um, he's influential, yes, but he's not as powerful, I think, um, as some people imagine he is. Okay, well, I'll respond to some of that, maybe not all of it, but the the funny thing is, you're making the, the the defense I made of Tate there. I'm like, if Tate was actually sex trafficking, he wouldn't constantly go on about his webcam studios and boast about them and tell you how you can do the same. But yeah, my point was, well, there's more that he, you know, he he's a pantomime villain dressing up like that for the masses. But I see what you're saying; that might might not be true either. The point about whether he's brainwashing the elites or not is sort of moot to me. That might be something maybe some other of your interlocutors are more interested in. I'm not that interested because the elites, like you say, think the same anyway. So whether Schwab is telling Rishi what to do or the other way around doesn't particularly interest me. They're all part of that group, the, um, the as you say, the party of Davos, as Steve Bannon calls it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly bothered about that distinction. What troubles me, though, is the fact that the message itself is sinister, that these messages come out like you'll owe nothing and you'll be happy or 
lockdowns were good because they reduced emissions. The very fact that these ideas are out there amongst this group and that the WEF posts them on Twitter and so on. I mean, I can't see them anymore because they blocked me. But they are, that to me is sinister enough that these ideas are in the elite and, and at least sort of tested on the public like this. To me, you know, who's telling who what to do? The hierarchies aren't that much of a problem. But why is there a video? You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You know, why is that even an idea that's out there? So that that's... Uh, and here's, an, here's a little extra idea that just I've just thought in the last couple of days. When I was watching Schwab at the opening of this latest Davos, I, it suddenly occurred to me, these people are desperate because actually even they can't stop the collapsing West. And all they're doing is trying to respond to that kind of desperately and control everyone and limit emissions and, and make you eat bugs and all these other mad ideas they have. And I suddenly thought, it just occurred to me, this is just purely just a, a feeling, really. I just thought the West is so, so doomed that actually we're thinking these people are imposing this on us and they're just destroying the West. What if the West is just so doomed and this is their desperate attempt to respond to it, but it's actually the problem is much bigger even than them. That's just something that occurred to me. Well, yeah, well, I think, I think, I think there is a serious point here, which is, and I think that, you know, you can make an argument for why, um, you know, um, it's, it's uh, the reason the WEF and Klaus Schwab are as influential as they are, um, is not because um, of anything particularly underhand they've done. It's because the West is in crisis. Um, uh, You know, socialism as a successor economic and social system to capitalism failed. Um, uh, And so then there was this kind of doubling down on capitalism, neoliberalism, uh, in the wake of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Um, and that has seemingly not been nearly as successful as its advocates imagined. It's led to conflicts. It's led to unsustainable levels of inequality. And if you believe in the kind of uh, climate change agenda, it's led to the rapacious exploitation of the planet in a way which isn't sustainable. So they've come up with what they imagine is a kind of third way, some kind of hybrid between capitalism and socialism. I think they call it, you know, stakeholder capitalism or something along those lines. And it and it's pretty feeble. It doesn't withstand much analysis. It relies far too much on imagining that there'll be all these kind of tech solutions to issues like, well, how are we going to meet our energy needs if we reduce our carbon emissions? And are we going to be able to pay people um, minimum basic income if AIs take over white collar jobs? And it's all this kind of magical thinking um, about how technology can solve some of these problems. Um, uh, I think that, you know, their third way takes far too much from socialism and not nearly enough from capitalism and all the rest of it. Um, But at least they've got an idea. At least they've got a theory. They're trying to address the problem. They're taking the problem seriously. And even if we don't like their solutions, the response is not to say these are cynical, evil people just promoting the interests of a kind of global elite cabal of billionaires they want to kill people and um the rest of it god knows exactly what you know the conspiracy theorists think exactly but you know surely the 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 mature response is to say if you don't like their solution is to come up with a better one so you know what we need is an alternative to neoliberalism and socialism which is more attractive and um less 
destructive of liberty um, than their solution, um, more consistent with our democratic ideals. Um, that's the way to kind of respond, to come up with better ideas which have more kind of purchase in the real world are more realistic, respect our liberty, um, uh, and try and influence the people that Klaus Schwab is so busy influencing um, just by being more persuasive, by having better ideas. And I think that's possible. Well, that's your, your optimism, Toby. And I immediately think I was too generous in my, because I'm more of an artist figure uh, than a, a rationalist. I just I just get these impressions. And what, I'd watched the opening of that Davos and Schwab was small, he'd lost weight. And I, and I just suddenly thought, he's just a sad little man rather than an all-powerful being. It's kind of a Wizard of Oz moment for me. And that's when I thought he's actually just responded to the problem. But you could equally argue they've caused the problems. But I suppose my argument is more that there's these economic problems now in play, in, play, in motion, whoever's caused them, where young people are dissatisfied with the system, where they're, they're poorer than the previous generation. The printing of money, this mass printing of money, mass inflation, and so on, all these other things. that They may have even caused them with their bad decisions, but now... They're trying to respond to them. I don't mean that climate change is as bad as they're saying and they're trying to respond to it because I just think that's nonsense. I, I just sort of mean maybe they've set, maybe they're, they're part, part of it, but forces have been set in motion that they can't even stop, even if they were the ones that started them. That's sort of my position. And I think they probably are evil. That's where I differ from you. <laughs> I think I think I probably still think they're more evil than you do. But they may not be evil because they're pantomime villains, but maybe evil because they want to control people to this extent. And they, they certainly imagine themselves the, the the leaders who will control us all and tell us you know about our low emission zones or we can't drive from one part of oxford to another they're certainly evil in that sense that they want it that they're authoritarians right well they have a kind of i not i don't I think evil's the wrong word and <laughs> means that you know people are less likely to take you seriously than if you use another word um i think they i think authoritarians better i think they have a kind of disdain for ordinary people and the agency of ordinary people and they think that ordinary people left to their own devices um, uh, untutored by these wise, super rich philosopher kings will just kind of destroy the earth and destroy themselves and destroy our societies. So they've got a kind of lack of faith in democracy um, and a kind of snobbish disdain for ordinary people and the human spirit. And that's why they, I think, have so little regard for liberty. They think, you know, just, to them, it's just license. It's just granting people a license to destroy themselves and wreck their lives and wreck our societies. And that's why they need to be carefully controlled. Uh, and, and that's not evil exactly. That's the kind of that's the kind of blind spot of most kind of liberal big state kind of uh, utopian people like that for two hundred, three hundred years. Yeah, that's true. And it even goes down to the, the the micro level of my football team, where your average Remainer type person. People have said to me, you know. Well, you know, you can't really trust people and so on. And they, they, they want things to be censored. Whereas I've been saying Vox Populi, Vox Dei for longer than Elon Musk, you know. And that's just the difference. I believe in people and, uh, and believe they'll do the right thing and believe that in the not then inherent knowledge, you know, sort of wisdom of these sort of ordinary men. Maybe I'm a romantic. But yeah, whereas your average uh, globalist just believes that people are scum to be told what to do, basically. Yeah, so I think we've sort of dealt with that to some degree. I hadn't planned it in my arguments. I think Toby had planned them better. So again, he probably won. But I just throw out these things. My piece is not really about that. My cockabook conspiracy piece is more about being a conspiracy moderate, which means maintaining your skepticism about conspiracy theories as well as about the normies. And it also means I've been on what I call a steady diet of red pills for years. These people are overdose on red pills. Then they tell me it's all planned. So I've been, I've been, guys, I've been following this for years. As I say in the piece, I've known about Bohemian Grove and the Bilderberg Group and the Gay Frogs and the Georgia Guidestones. And the, the, the conspiracy moderate can be described as such... 
the the normie hears about Bohemian Grove that they're worshiping an owl god. The elites are worshiping an owl god in the woods, and he goes, "You what, mate?" Whereas the uh, the, the sort of uh, full on red pill conspiracy person says they're sacrificing children in the woods, Alex Jones style. They're sacrificing children to an owl god. And, and the conspiracy model goes, they're not sacrificing children to the owl god. However, they are doing a sort of weird bacchanalian festival in the woods. The elites are meeting to, at least in a theatrical way, worship an owl god. And that's weird enough. And we should be aware of it and quite concerned. So that's the, that's the conspiracy model argument. Where do you lie on that, by the way, Toby, just quickly? I, I think it's, I, well, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it, it, it's a network, um, broadly an old boys network but not exclusively um and via that network various people are able to extend their influence and and you know bypass some uh, democratic accountability but i don't think it's evil and i don't think it's you know i think i think they're they're exactly worshiping an owl god um and i think uh, for the most part they're just kind of um having a good time in the woods for a couple of weeks <laughs> but i mean all these things there was bilderberg group that was denied now we know david lammy goes there i mean that's pretty banal but that was denied for years i'm just saying these general things the normie denies them then they are real they may not be as extreme as something but they they there is the bilderberg group they do meet formally in secret and now they've admitted it does that ever give you pause about your cock up theory well, I think they like to be um, perhaps, you know, as influential as the conspiracy theorists imagine they are. And they often exaggerate their influence, partly, you know, just in order to raise money for their organizations or in order to be able to charge, you know, the ticket prices they're charging. There was one chap who complained, um, an anti-Russian pro-Ukrainian lobbyist um and or other pro-ukraine lobbyist and uh bill browder i think he's called he was complaining that he couldn't afford a ticket to davos this year so he wasn't able to go there to lobby on behalf of the of ukraine uh, because it's 200 the ticket price is now two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. see if you're going to be charging a quarter of a million pounds to people to attend your jamboree uh, in the Alps, then of course you're going to exaggerate your influence. You're going to say you have world leaders at your beck and call, and you know you've got them at the other end of a phone, and they'll do your bidding. Um, you know because otherwise people aren't going to pay that much to attend. But you know a lot of it is flim flam, smoke and mirrors. So Toby thinks it's a pricing issue. So okay, I'm not going to get him quite onto a team Nick just yet. I think he's not quite a conspiracy moderate yet. I think you've still got a foot in team Normie there, Toby. But but it's interesting. We'll see if I can edge you out slightly towards the. Uh, not towards the full-on red pill doomer or black pill doomers, but just towards the conspiracy moderates. But hey, that'll, that'll continue. You can dis- The listener can decide for themselves. Um, Toby, do you want to quickly squeeze in our third ad? Yes, I'll do that. Uh, so this is from our good friend Thor. Um, and it's a little bit shorter than the um, previous one. Uh, and uh, so Thor submitted a wanted ad today. Uh oh! <laughs> he told me he was going to do this. I didn't know he was going to go through with it. Yeah, <laughs> Thor writes: Ernest Shackleton's original wanted ad is well worth revisiting for his powerful, concise copy. This is Shackleton's original: Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition. In event of success, Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. And now here is Thor's version. Ballsy blokes and based babes wanted for hazardous 
free-thinking journey. Profits beat wages, good return on investment, very likely. Climb aboard at fourhalt.substack.com. FYI, Substack is a genuine free speech platform, so worth supporting. And did Nick mention he also has a top-notch Substack himself at nickdixon.substack.com, where, while eulogising Old England, he delivers sermons replete with misery and mirth, just like a good priest should. Of course, a good priest should also be celibate. Dot dot dot. And then he said, <laughs> "Add your own punchline, Nick." Um, I don't know if I meant you to do that before I read it out. Maybe you thought you'd be reading it out. I'm not sure. Always hard to tell with Thor's copy. Uh, skull, my fellow skeptics, and have a wonderful week. P.S. Thor adds our first London Callers Coffee Club in person meetup, which, as a weekly skeptic listener, you're invited to, is on board a classic motor launch called Bell Epoch, owned by a London Calling listener. You can find out how to hire the boat yourself at www.bell-epoch.co.uk. And that, of course, is spelt E-P-O-Q-U-E. Please let Thor know if you'd like an invitation because numbers are limited. And, of course, you can also contact Thor at his LinkedIn address, which is uh, LinkedIn slash in slash Thorholt. That's LinkedIn slash in slash Thorholt. So, yeah. Nick, tell us about your own counselling session with <laughs> our most loyal advertiser. Well, firstly, it's nice of Thor to give me a sort of weird meta ad within an ad on my own podcast, kind of inception level ad for my Substack. And he was very nice. He just said I was like a, a priest eulogising the West uh you know in a humorous way which was which was very nice of him and um yeah Thor very interesting we we talked about the idea of the wanted ad he's uh Thor he asked very incisive questions and he gets you thinking about things in a different way and he gets you thinking about your business slash career in a different way and and what you could do there so yeah I think he's, he's very very and he's very enthusiastic very interesting guy and we had a good chat and um much like Dan you know generous with his time and a good chat. And I think if I spoke to Thor more, I'd have all kinds of uh, ideas. And so I do recommend Thor. I definitely think people should get in touch for help with, you know, maybe their life, but also their business and career, because he'll, he'll ask you questions and get you thinking in a different way. So that's Thor. So, uh, and like I say, I'm vetting all our, all our advertisers. Do you want to quickly do Peak Woke now, Toby? Everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. Let's do Peak Woke. <laughs> So um, I'll start with one, then you come in with one, and then I'll come in with my killer and then see if you can top it. So my my starter, my opener today is the University of Southern California has issued some guidance to students and staff in which it counsels them not to use certain words um, because they could offend some people. And one of the words on this banned list is the word field, um, which which was quite surprising. And the, the, the explanation for why field is offensive is because it could um, uh, get people who are the descendants of slaves, uh, it could remind them that much of the work their ancestors did was in fields. So um, I think that, that you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're in... Um, the anthropology 
department don't talk about field work or going into the field because that could trigger some african-american students who might who might just suddenly start thinking about the fact that their ancestors were slaves and had to work in fields which seems like maybe it's just me a pretty tenuous reason for not using the word field but who knows yeah um, so what's your what's your start of a 10 Nick? that was a good one i think my start of a 10 I'm, I'm tempted to go for the mlk statue but it's not sort of totally clearly woke so i think i'm going to go with the jk rowling books that this guy uh Lauer Flom, who calls himself a book artist in Toronto, has been rebinding Harry Potter books, but with J.K. Rowling's name taken off because she is so evil and all her evil views. Quite weirdly, leaves on Harry Potter. So people can still see you reading Harry Potter. I mean, why not cover it with something blank or have it say something completely different or something completely safe, like why wokeness is amazing or something. And he's charging 140 quid a pop for these. So it's kind of where censorship and opportunism meet. I mean, absolutely absurd. I think that's pretty woke to to scrub J.K. Rowling's name from her own books because you're worried about, well, either how it will look or how you'll feel if you'll just be so triggered by the name. Now, you mentioned J.K. Rowling. I guess she should be in the uh, So You've Been Cancelled Big Brother house. Um, along with Jeremy Clarkson and Jordan Peterson, um, uh, that would be um, yeah, that would be. That I, would I be, love I'd the like, symbolism. I'd pay. Work. I'd pay to watch that. Yeah, yeah. Peterson's like, <laughs> I like the archetypes in Harry Potter. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> uh, um, so, okay, my second, which I think is stronger, but it is in is 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 similar, which is uh, Guido Fawkes. Uh, yesterday uh, ran a story about. Um, a course which um, some uh, employees at the Home Office, employees of the Home Office's Homeland Security Group, which is the UK's actual counterterrorism unit. So they've had to go this um, diversity training um, in which they're told, amongst other things, that the following words are now unacceptable. So some of them are predictable, like uh, tranny, um, uh, she-male, um, but some of them quite surprising. So um, homosexual apparently uh, is out now because that's generally considered a medical term as though being gay is a medical condition that people need to be cured of. Um, so if you in any way suggest that people aren't born gay and it's not an authentic expression of who they are, uh, and apparently the word homosexual does suggest that, then that's obviously taboo. Um, but, um, okay, uh, you can't use the word transsexual because, again, that, 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 that has a history of being used as a medical term. Uh, uh, people prefer the term trans or transgender but here's where you could easily fall into a trap transgender okay but transgendered not okay because that suggests a condition of some kind and transgenderism that is completely unacceptable because it suggests that trans people are only trans because they subscribe to the ideology of transgenderism rather than it just being an authentic expression of who they really are. Um, uh, so transgenderism and transgendered, both out, but trans or transgender in. So, um, yeah, quite, quite tricky, quite, quite, to have to tread quite carefully in the minefield in, <laughs> if you work for the counterterrorism unit, you know, it's not just 
actual unexploded bombs you need to worry about it's bombs that might go off in the office if you say if you put a d on the end of the word transgender or an ism we cover this on headliners on gb news and you missed out something there toby which is the they were also shown an extract from an email which read sorry for calling you mate now i don't think it was a missed call yes. issue sorry for calling you comma mate i think it was um sorry for calling you the word mate which is also somehow not allowed and yeah and it's a classic thing, the home of this is happening in the civil service, then the government distanced themselves from it vaguely, but it continues. And the bizarre idea that homosexual is sexualizing you and sort of you're judged purely by your sexuality. And I thought that's what this whole movement's about. Like, hey, I'm a biromantic asexual or I am asexual and all these things. Although Josh said to me, no, it's about gender, whereas they don't like that because it's about sex and, and biological sex and actual reality and things. I, so perhaps that's an argument. But aren't they just obsessed with defining themselves purely by their sexuality? That's what I thought. But anyway, that's a strong contender for Pete Wilkes. Yeah, I mean, it, it did seem like, I mean, banning the word transgenderism because it suggests that um, uh, it's an ideology that we can argue with. That that seemed like a kind of almost too transparent an attempt to control how we think about these issues by controlling the words we can use to speak about them. It's like saying it's now rather than engage in arguments um, for trans rights or why trans rights should take priority over sex-based women's rights in certain contexts. They're simply saying even to argue with us um, is now taboo because that suggests that we are beholden to an ideology rather than simply authentically expressing who we are and victims of oppression and the rest of it. It's just, I mean, it's like... They're just warriors uh, of the If truth. I was a gender-critical feminist, I'd be pretty worried about that. Yeah, so that's a good one. My final one then, Toby, I'm going to hit you with, is the Miss Universe contest. Now being run by a biological man, someone called Jackafong, Jackafong Jakrajutatip. That may not be the correct pronunciation, but usefully this person is also known by Anne. So that's quite helpful for us Westerners. And um, this person is now has taken over Miss Universe and said, from now on, it's going to be run by women. And everyone must say women, which was a cruel attack on, on her, his, her pronunciation. From now on, it's going to be run by women, owned by a trans woman, for all women, for all women around the world, to celebrate the power of feminism. So it was a bold feminist move for a biological man to take over Miss Universe. And this, this, this uh, trans woman person has two children, which was confusing as well. But of course, they were surrogate children, Toby, when you dig a bit deeper. So yes, it's this is a surely Pete Woke because it's Miss Universe being run by what haters would call a man. Yeah, I mean, it's it must be, um, it must put GC feminists in a bit of a dilemma because, you know, they don't want to defend the integrity of beauty pageants and contests like Miss World and Miss Universe by objecting to biological males competing for these titles um, because presumably they, they didn't have any truck with these kind of contests that objectified and trivialized women in the first place. But it's almost as though they're thrown back on having to defend them because even though they didn't like them, they've suddenly got worse by an order of magnitude. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, these are all very strong contenders, Toby. And I, I, maybe the listener yeah. should decide. I was thinking maybe the listener should comment <laughs> and decide who wins Weak Poke and Peak Woke and, and tell us in the comments. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a good good suggestion. Get people to engage and uh, yeah, let us know who, who wins Peak Woke this week. Yeah, because we can't really say. All right. Um, 
so we, it's a bumper show this week. We, we've done a, we've done a lot there, but let's quickly just go to one of our reviews. And we love your reviews. Please leave a five star review if you're so inclined, and write a comment. So this one is on the uh, Apple app, and it says top banter from the top G's. The one podcast that you can't ignore each week. Informative without taking itself too seriously. Funny in a very British way, plus the best competition since the World Cup. Peak woke. And they've added, could only be improved if Nick got himself down to Loftus Road. Maybe so. Well, uh-huh. A live one from the touchline of, of QPR. So A QPR fan. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm a United fan, unfortunately, till I die. I say, unfortunately, Man United are doing pretty well. But it means I can't get down the ground anymore because we I don't live there. But Toby, anything else to add? Well... Um, I don't think so. Let's let's. Uh, I was going to bring something else up, but let's talk about it next week instead, um, because I think we probably stretched the patience of our listeners this week. No. This has been one of our longest ones. They love the I've long been... episode. <laughs> oh, that's uh, good. Oh, I was I was gonna I was gonna just um, I was gonna um, moan a bit about the extraordinary success of the rest of the rest is history. Not because I think it's bad. I think it's very good, and I think Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook are you know great company and. They're incredibly erudite. I mean, it's it's impressive every week. Um, but it's got over 50 million downloads. I mean, they're doing even better than Constantine. Um, it is now the most successful podcast in the world. And if you listen to it, um, you know, it's good, um, but it's not very well produced. And it didn't seem to have any adverts on it. And, um, uh, and I was thinking, well, you know, it doesn't seem to cost anything to make. Um, uh, and they don't seem to be, you know, even though it's produced by the BBC, um, it's just basically like, it sounds a lot. I mean, in, in some ways, our podcast is better produced. It's certainly more produced. They didn't have, you know, the stings that we have. They did divide it into two parts, but, um, they didn't seem to have any ads in it. Oh, I was thinking, how do they make their money? And then I did a bit of digging and I discovered that, um, you know, the, the basic podcast is free, but if you become, you know, a friend of, um, the rest is history for six six pounds a month you then get a bonus episode each week and you get um first refusal on tickets to their live shows and this is another string to their bow they're going on tour they're doing a live show at the drury lane theater which is already sold out so that's that's a pretty big theater to sell out um so you know even though there were no ads on the show i listened to um they must be absolutely minting it and they must have cut some deal with the bbc whereby they agreed to produce it and promote it and in return didn't want a cut i imagine of their kind of they've even got this kind of additional tier of membership um called athelstan in which you have to pay 25 pounds a month and you get kind of all these other perks you get to have a you get to pay like a zoom quiz once a month hosted by tom and dominic there's got to be some ideas here for us nick about how we could monetize the weekly skeptic and as you know one of your tasks as deputy editor is to think about how we can monetize the weekly skeptic and i think maybe maybe a live tour nick maybe we could kick off with a live event in london um in which we just do a live recording of the show and we do a bit of q a and maybe you do a bit of stand-up um and you know we, we package it all up and we sell tickets for i don't know 10 pounds a head I, I don't suppose we should start at the drury lane theater but um Maybe, maybe we could, maybe we could fill a three hundred seater. Well, Toby, all I do is think about ways to expand the weekly skeptics. So that's my job, twenty four seven. But yeah, we're a couple of million off them, I guess, in our downloads. But we're we're getting there. And so yeah, well, people should let us know, let us know ideas. And would you come to a, a live weekly skeptic if we did it? Be in London, presumably. I, I, I've got an idea. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, trigonometry 
sometimes goes on tour and records live and people buy tickets to to see that maybe we could be the kind of warm-up act for trigonometry we could kind of like you know the support act you know further down the bill no Uh, (laughs) we're putting our foot in the water i don't think i could ever do that having invented their (laughs) podcast essentially i don't think i could uh, ever do that but people will come and see us off our own back toby we're the headliners i think they'll come along anyway but let us know you know come to a weekly like would you come to a weekly live skeptic i think they would but uh, if that's all we got, Toby, it is a bumper episode, so we've given good value there, I think. And uh, I, that's all, really. And we'll see you next week. And as I always say, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical.